This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast on the Makery Network. I'm Jeff Bader. And when I think of all-around excellence, there is no way that I'm not thinking about guys like Cliff Dufton. Cliff Dufton is my friend. He's a blacksmith, fabricator, bladesmith, toolmaker. His precision and his all-around excellence sets him high above a lot of metal, most of the metal workers that I know. I'm sorry, but it's true. Cliff, how I'm are good. you? Good, how are you? I'm great. I, you're, you're a very, uh, I, uh, when I started telling people that I was going to have you on, a lot of people were very interested because you, you've, you've created quite a reputation for yourself. Yeah, I guess I, I didn't know. you didn't know it well you're very humble too so just we're just right out of the shoot how are you doing now with i know you're you live in new york uh with the quarantine we you and i talked to throughout the whole quarantine and uh how have you how have you been handling the lockdown since march i'm doing better now um it was tough it was definitely rough in the beginning um you know for a lot of reasons obviously but uh things are getting a little more normal and most senses right it's tough it's tough in the city especially because you you live in in uh, new york city you have a job uh as uh what do, what do you do for the art uh, arts yes students arts so i i teach what the metal sculpture class there and then you just have students come in and and you're and you're teaching the sculpture yeah. classes uh so I would admit. Sorry. Go oh, uh, yeah. I, so I Go teach ahead. 24 hours a week there. Um, and just generally in the mornings, I teach all day Monday and then Tuesday through Friday. I'm there for you know a four hour shift in the morning. And, uh, you know, when it started out, it was just uh, basically just teaching them how to use all the equipment safely. Uh, and once I'm comfortable and they're comfortable kind of using most things, just kind of feel out their projects and just help them help them get to where where they want to be with what they're working on so it, it's nice because it's so a, you get a lot of variety compared to you know working in a fabrication shop or something where you're kind of doing the same thing all the time that's an, a pretty amazing thing to have in the middle and as a new yorker i'm telling you you're not from north it's a pretty amazing thing to have as a resource in new york to basically have a place where you can come and make sculpture in the middle of new york oh yeah i i mean it's uh, you know, like, uh, I think full time is, let's see, it's four hours a day, five days a week. That's 20, 20 hours a week. So 80 hours a month. And they're only paying like $400 a month, I think, is the current tuition. So it's not for profit. So they're paying like next to nothing to have this. It's a small shop. It's probably 800 square feet, but it's very well equipped and organized. Uh, it's like a yeah. gym. It's like getting yeah, a gym membership. Yeah. That's unbelievable. I, I would imagine that it's a that's pretty popular. Oh yeah, it's it's very popular. It's usually it's usually very hard to get in. You have to wait for someone to like die or something. <laughs> <laughs> so so they have the so which makes me, you know, realize, especially I've we've talked in the past, as once, 
you know, the lockdown happened and businesses were shut down. I mean, that shut your, you know, no more. Yeah. Schools, we shut down right? March 14th, I believe it was. And, and, th- and then what did you do in the, in the, during that time? Did the, did you guys do anything? Uh, nothing. I mean, I guess initially when it happened, we really had no idea how long it was going to be for. I don't think we ever expected it to go this long. So initially they were just, you know, still paying everybody and just waiting for things to hopefully just go back to normal, which they obviously didn't. And, uh, yeah, things are just constantly changing ever since then in terms of when we're going to reopen, how people get paid, if they get paid, who gets fired, who gets, who gets to stay on and so on and so right. forth. So luckily I've, I've not, you know, so- I've not been let go or anything. And Right. Well, this is this is a this is the problem that's going on all over the all over the yeah. world right now. And you know, I when this all really when all the pandemic first started, it was very clear that you know, you know, if you're living up in, like by me in the suburbs, there there are opportunities that you know you're you're away from people. But when you're in the middle of New York City, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Yeah. In the beginning, I would say it was kind of. Uh, I don't want to say good because there's nothing really good about it. But at first it was just everyone was still just getting paid normal and didn't have to go in. So you just had a ton of free time. But, you know, after a few weeks go past, you're kind of like starting to go crazy. You're crazy enough to think you're like, I'm dying to go back to work. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's, you know, I, I just remember, you know, as a kid or even when my kid was young and during Hurricane Sandy, when her school was closed for a week. I just remember, God, I, I just wish this would go back and that week felt like forever. But now with the pandemic, it just seems like weeks are nothing and, and months are becoming nothing. And then all of a sudden, so much time has passed. I mean, it's been four months since uh, my wife was diagnosed with COVID-19 and she was on her back. You know, it's like four months have passed and we're we're trying to get our lives back together. And it's crazy. But what I do know is that you know, you're also you also do uh, you also have another job. You're you're you. Uh, what do you do? Uh, what's your but, other so my other that? job is a superintendent. I wouldn't say it's income, but I don't pay rent. So I, I'm a super for three buildings. It's 55 apartments, close to 100 tenants. Uh, so in the afternoons, you know, when I get back from the school, I'm I'm pretty much on call all the time. Right. Um, but like my normal hours when I do like my day to day stuff will be like when I get back from the school around one o'clock until, you know, I mean, anywhere between six, seven o'clock. And after that, I try not to do anything unless it's really emergency stuff. But th- right. those things happen. And you've created you've created this tiny, not tiny, it's this labyrinth shop in the basement of one of the buildings, which is just this extraordinary you know, you've you've taken every nook and cranny and kind of created uh, your own little space, which is just, you know, I mean, incredible. And I would mean, I know that you were getting a little bit of work done there, but you can only so much you can do. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I try, I, you know, I, I do my best not to take it for granted because it is a huge space, but it's like a dungeon, you know, it's, it's a lot of tiny yeah, little rooms, is, like, it's dark, it's damp. But that was one of the initial perks of the the super job it was actually the owner of the building took my class so that's how i met oh. him and 
it just circumstances where I was living before I was commuting from Rockland. So it's only 30 miles away, but in the morning, that's an hour and a half easily. I was driving in, paying tolls, paying parking. And I had a, my, I had two roommates at the time. And one of them just kind of was like, I'm moving out in two weeks. He's like, yeah, that's what they all and do. And I'm like, oh shit. I'm like, well, lucky for you two guys that your parents live, you know, a couple miles away. You're both going to just move back home. My parents live on the, on the West coast out in Seattle. So I was like, I got to find a place to live in two weeks. So I just kind of asked the owner, I was like, is there any chance I could maybe like work off some rent, you know, work with you work off. Yeah. Rent for an apartment there. So I could just be closer to work. And he's like, how, how, how'd you like to be the super made it sound all glamorous. Like you're going to have the whole basement for your shop. And I was like, that sounds great. (laughs) It it's a lot, a lot of work. Yeah, that's that's the part they don't tell you until you're until you're stuck in there. But I mean, having an having an having an apartment in Manhattan is is not. No, it's a, it's a great you know, deal. I'm, I'm just you know. No, of course. Now, if I were if this is now, I knew all this beforehand, and if I didn't know what you had done, you know what you do. You're teaching. You're a superintendent of three buildings, and you're on call, and you're doing this all this stuff. I would think, how does Cliff Dufton have the time? to make this beautiful hammers and hydraulic presses and grinders and beautiful knives and beautiful tools. How do you have the time to do this? You know, and one of the fascinating things about you is you have such a very good eye for uh, time management. You know, I think that one of the things that, uh, and we're going to get back into it is, you know, you're the precision and the well-rounded excellence and, and all that stuff. It, it, it's not, it's not, it doesn't come from nowhere. Like I'm convinced that, I mean, I have a few of your hammers and tongs that you made, the guillotine tool that you've made. There's such, there's such precision and I see so much efficiency in all, all the work. There's no slop, there's no fat in it. I wonder where it all comes from because I'm sure that it, I don't think that, I don't think that anyone uh, I think that they're naturally inclined to behave and their intent is to be a certain way. So let's just go back a little bit. You grew up on the, on the, in the Pacific Northwest? No, that's just where my parents lived. I, I grew up here. I was actually born in Manhattan. And then, yeah. Oh, really? Where did you go to school? Uh, we moved out to Rockland County around the time I started school. When I saw, I guess I was five oh. or six, so Rockland and and that's where I live most. So is that like it's, Nyack? It's right near Nyack, yes. No, Nyack is in Rockland. That's yeah. where you're. Yeah. So so I didn't know you were from Rockland County. I always assumed that you were from the. Pacific no, Rockland. they just moved there. My for my mom's job, she's moved around a lot. And the reason why I'm saying that is because your fan base out in the Pacific Northwest is a little ridiculous. I mean, I got I got messages from some guys who got questions for you, and and uh, so you so you stayed out in Rockland. Your family moves out. You you stayed in Rockland. And growing up, I, I, I listened to the podcast that you did with, uh, with uh, Rick and Jesse, and you were saying that growing up, your, your, parent, your father did a lot of renovations. Yeah, I mean, I basically lived on a construction site my, my entire life, I would say. How much, I mean, how into it would he get? Oh, I mean, he, he, he wanted to do as much as possible, and my mom was like, let's have other people do this part. You know, like yeah. framing, like uh, a lot of them were... More than just renovations, they were, you know, additions. The last house I actually lived in with them, we tripled the size of the house. 
and she huh. convinced them to let the company do the framing. That's all they did, and then we did everything else. They put basically the frame of the house or the addition up in like two days. You know, it's a crew that does does that kind of work. Yeah. And you know, for me and my dad and like our other workers were like my friends. It, it would it would have taken us weeks so, or months. What kind of business was your father? Uh, he was an engineer. So he worked for engineering firm for a while, and then he just wanted to do the this stuff, you know, his own business. So it turned into kind of a house flipping thing in a way, but it wasn't oh, quick flips. It was like we lived there for a long time. He he would take on big, you know, he had just uh, big dreams of what it should be, which my mom liked too. So, but she, so, you know, when you live in a construction site, it's almost never clean the way. Yeah. It's a drag. There are people. See, that's the thing is that there are people who are destination people. They want to get to the end point, and there's some people who are in it for the journey. And it seems to me like your father was like into the journey part of it, and your mom was like, "Let's exactly. get there already. What's enough with it? Yes. Is enough with this?" <laughs> so, so when he was in doing engineering, what kind of stuff was he working on? Uh, you know what? I don't even know. He he stopped that when I was young and and went into the the okay. construction stuff and it it is like you said like when we would actually finish a house he was like let's sell it move out and start another one where my mom's right. like let's let's enjoy this for a little bit yeah. it's finished everything's yeah. clean so yeah but that's I mean I you know it's funny now we're gonna get into it so so how young were you when your father started showing you how to do things and how asking you to help him with with the construction of these, uh, these additions. Ooh, I, I was definitely very young. Like under 10? Yeah. 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 Oh, really? So you were, you knew what he was doing in the morning and you weren't watching cartoonies on Saturdays. You were, you were helping your old man. Well, I'm sure when I was that young, I didn't necessarily know what, what was going on. I was just kind of along for the ride. I don't know when I actually started to yeah. get more hands on with it, but it was probably, yeah, in around like the yeah. 10 area. I remember like, because I, I had a, when we were young, I was sitting on his lap on an excavator. And I guess it just was like, I was like, I put my foot down when he was doing something. And part of the excavator came down and like squeezed my foot. And like, it did, I don't even remember any pain or anything, but like, I just remember the the panic he had when he realized and like ran me to the hospital and it didn't end up actually breaking anything. It was just like, I, I guess I felt it. And I was like, oh, my foot's stuck. And that that could have been a, well, that could have been a lot worse. The- I was just sitting on his lap in yeah. an excavator, and he's like, you know, moving moving okay. dirt around and and stuff. So I mean, it's that 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 is always. I I have a story. My the only thing that I ever did when I was a kid, I love I loved sitting on my father's lawnmower. He had a riding a big. Oh, for me, I was really young. I was like five or six. He had a, a um a lawnmower, and I used to sit on it, and I used to pretend I was yeah. riding around. And sometimes when he would he would mow, he'd let me sit on his lap, and it was always amazing. He let me steer and stuff. I just remember he parked it on a slight hill, and I got on it, and I don't know what possessed me. I was like five or something like that. I actually un I un I unlocked the brake, and then it started to move, and I just jumped off, and then it re- it rolled, and it was a neutral. It rolled all the way down the hill oh, and hit a tree. But it, my parents were freaking out because you're just yeah. like, oh my god, how did that happen? How did this young boy? How did this young boy do this? And I was just like, I felt terrible. He was mad at me. I mean, obviously it wasn't my fault, but at the same time, I I felt this, that was the first time where I felt like 
this panic that this machine can get out of control. I was just used to sitting on his lap or if it was locked in park, then I could just pretend like I was driving around. But, I, but once it started moving and out of my control, it's good. It you jumped terrible. off. I was yeah. totally afraid. <laughs> I was afraid. I mean, you know, I was like, I didn't know what to do. I mean, it was just, I basically fell off. I don't think I, I, I don't think it was like drawn. Yeah. Let's go. It was like fuck <laughs> this. And I just Bail. fell off. I think as kids, so, we love, we love so, knobs and buttons and things like that. <laughs> dude, it, it's, but at the same time, the fact that, you know, you're sitting on this excavator, you're, you, you feel something pinch, your dad takes you to the hospital, everything's okay. And you come home, you're not immediately like, I'm not getting on that. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't even, you were I, like, I wasn't still hurt. So I didn't, in a pre- it didn't really phase me. I just remember his panic more than anything. I remember the shoes I was yeah. wearing. They were like those Converse oh, I, I, with like like dinosaurs on them or something. I don't know how, how I remember these weird details. I can imagine. Well, that, you know, that, that's one of those things that, that uh, you, you always, I mean, it was a tra- obviously traumatic. The, the trauma was probably your parents being tra- yeah. upset about it. So, so how many built, how many houses do you think he f- did the renovation to? And then, and then started flipping and then. They were mostly long-term know. projects. I think uh, four over the course I, the Four, last one the was in what? Seattle, so I didn't live there, but I visited them. And I, when I would visit, I would usually visit for an extra week and be be helping Help with them. the work because he was he's older, so, so he he's do- getting it is it was less capable to do certain things, just physical stuff. So would you say that he was doing not only the sheetrock and stuff like that, but the electrical, oh, and yeah, the plumbing, yeah, and all everything. that? Yeah. Okay, so that's so you were doing that from as a teenage years. You remember just getting involved with whatever he was working on. Yeah, you were helping. Yeah. I'm sure that's why I was easy to so, get the super job. He, you know, he, he saw my resume. Like, oh, you could do plumbing and electrical. He's like, great. We won't have yeah, to pay a plumber or an electrician yeah. for everything. But at the same time, at the same time, the next job you had is far more interesting to me. This is like this. The, the what you're helping your father and being involved with your father is shows that. You know, the interest in kind of seeing a project, those, those renovation jobs too, especially for a young kid. You know, if you make a birdhouse, you make a project, a one-day project as a kid, you feel that satisfaction. But as a young child, that long, you know, acceptance of it takes a while to get to your destination and to still be able to, you know, not saying like, dad, I'm going to go with my friends, this sucks and I want to do this. It shows you, you this degree of kind of following through. But one of the things that interests me is you started to work for a BMW company, right? No. Oh, a Mercedes. Or, or, that, my first, the first time Mercedes, I worked Mercedes. in um, mechanics was a, it was a Mercedes. They would buy like old, old Mercedes and, and basically strip them down for parts to repair other old Mercedes. And how did you get that job? It was a, a friend of my dad's. Uh, he knew I like cars and stuff. He's like, oh, you, you could do this as like, a, I think it was a summer job. I was young. I was, you know, probably 15, 16, 15. something like that. That's, that's yeah. pretty young. That's pretty young to be taking. A, so, so what was your, what was your, you know, what, were, what was your day-to-day uh, job when you worked for Mercedes? Or the company Mercedes, the company that bought the Mercedes part. Oh, it was just, uh, it was like a grungy place, but like they just had, you know, they would, we would basically just take the car apart as far as it could possibly be taken apart and, and determine, I was just like disassembling basically. And they had mechanics who were longtime mechanics there and 
would say, you know, this is worth keeping. This is scrap. Uh, you know, they they knew they knew it was a so value. You, like they know what breaks on the on the Mercedes that are still up and running, which you know generally Mercedes last a long time. The, the old ones. So learning how to do those, learning how, to, and then you were cataloging the parts. And how many do you think you were there for? How long do you think yeah, you were like, there for? A year or two. Wow. And I, I went to another, so and you, I you, uh, started working in a different mechanic shop. What did you, what did you, I mean, when you're taking these cars apart, what were you feeling? Were you kind of like getting an understanding of how things go together? Or what do you, what would you think was going through your head when you're putting this? I just, I like to tinker with stuff. So it's just fun to like kind of take something apart and try to figure out like what it does or, you know, whatever. It's just, it's like, like, you know, I was like a big, like, I'm sure most of us were big, like Lego fans. You know, did the Legos, yeah. and it was like the uh, there were like the mechanical Legos, and you know, just like figuring stuff out, taking it apart, even if you can't get it back together. <laughs> it's just fun to take. Well, it but apart. I mean, that's I mean, figuring out how to take it apart without ruining it. You know, like you know, I, I just know that how many times that I've I've stripped a slotted bolt or I've you know destroyed something. So I would imagine the, the, you have to be a degree of there had to be a degree of precision, a degree of kind of carefulness in order to take it apart i I just think that all this all this stuff is very um influential on the kind of person that you are and the things that you've done and i think that being able to be you know because even taking these parts apart without destroying them i mean it's not like you were taking apart with a chainsaw i mean you're taking apart with like you know trying to figure out ways in which to extract parts that are valuable and then you're kind of keep you keep on doing that and then giving value to these parts is there's a degree of meticulousness that you end up getting and it's almost like you know like in karate kid where he's telling you to you know what you know paint the paint paint the the fence up and down yeah. a million times you're getting a degree of um you know muscle memory for torque and how much pressure you should be applying and how things come apart going back and forth and i would imagine that that kind of oh yeah you. for sure i mean the repetition certainly helps and i'm sure there were thousands of failures but that's how you learn you know Oh, I'm pushing yeah. it too hard or whatever, you know. I've definitely broken so, plenty of things or not been able to get things back together. But. How many cars do you think? You, so, so the, and then, so the, that place you're taking cars apart and then the next place are you putting them back together? Well, that place or, we also did some repairs. Like the longer I was there, I got to uh, mess with more stuff. I remember like one of the highlights of being there was they restored one of the old Gullwing uh, Mercedes. So it was like a red, like old red Gullwing. And it was just... What did you do on that? Oh, it was just, we were like replace. it was like had rusted out like floor pans. So we're replacing floor pans and just, uh, they were doing some body work to it. I did, you know, they let me like sand it a little bit. Uh, and that was the first time I tried welding when they put the floor pans in. But this, the span, it was mostly Spanish guys other than the manager who didn't speak a ton of English. Yeah. So like they're showing me how to weld, but they right. couldn't really explain it. And I was like, ah, I was like, this is cool, but I wish I understood what was actually happening. And that, that's what made right. me want to do a, a welding trade school later on. So, so yeah, well, you know, that is one of the funny things about welding is there is, you know, you can, you can be taught by not really being taught. You know, there's, especially, you know, there's, there's not that, I mean, there's obviously the, the, the better you get at it, you know, you can turn a MIG welder on and then you get, you get the wire speed and the voltage right. And then you're at the right distance. I mean, you yeah. Love, if someone sets you know, up the and machine and, and, for you, yeah. almost anyone can 
put down a decent bead with a, a MIG welder by just telling them, like, stay this I mean, far away, people... move this fast, do this motion, and, and they can figure it out. But, like, troubleshooting, like, why is this weld messed up uh, is a different thing. You know, is my gas not on? Well, that, is, I mean, is my voltage wrong? Is my wire speed wrong? All my teaching, there. all the teaching that I had, all the teaching that I had was from artists. It was a disaster, you know, because there was for sure no, I learned everything I learned was backwards. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by what you did because I had no experience. My first jobs had, were nothing to do with anything technical. I was all, my first jobs in the, in the, you know, metal worker and arts was working for artists. And so when you're doing fabrication for artists, they just want the shit to yeah. stick together. They're not really, I mean, they're not really looking for, we weren't, I was doing, uh, you know, understructures for yeah. sculptors. So they didn't give a shit what it looked like. And then if they had a MIG welder, they were like, basically, does it sound good? And is it going to hold? There wasn't, there was, I wasn't getting, and then like most people who learn how to MIG weld, you think you're the best MIG welder <laughs> yeah, around it's, until you meet someone yeah, who actually knows what they're doing. It's the easiest of all of them. I think Point that they, I think that they, somebody had to figure that out because Somebody figured out that arc welding is too hard to teach everybody. Yeah, like stick. Because there's such a, there's a, yeah, stick welding. There's a finesse to it that I try to explain to people that it's like you actually have to, you scratch start and then you actually have to hold it a hair above so you kind of create that connection. You can't just touch it and it starts going. And then you're moving, not only are you moving your hand from a distance, it's not like a MIG welder, you were right up close. You're holding it behind, yeah, and then you're not in. only are you moving it, but you're also feeding it in. So you're moving in two different axes. And I think that what happened was somebody was just like, man, we are going <laughs> to probably when they were, I don't know the history of MIG welding at some point, we're going to figure <laughs> that out. But I mean, it was very clear. They were just like, man, we got to make we this, make really this like, so a monkey could do it. I Like a monkey could do it. And the funny thing is, is the longer you go through life, and now I met these guys who could MIG weld, and they'd be like, I would say to me, I'm the best MIG welder you ever met. I'm like, Oh, I'm the best pencil shop <laughs> too. You know, it's like it wasn't really a, you know. I mean, but at the same time, I thought the same thing. I'm like, I'm Mr. Welder. Like I was the the welding shop assistant at my school, and I at my at my college, and I thought that I was, I thought that I was the, I, you know, I thought I was David yeah. Smith. You know, I thought <laughs> I was like, you know, all these guys. And then um, it wasn't the case. But I'm fascinated by the fact that you almost had you had a different background because you had this kind of meticulous life. You're father has showed interest in kind of doing these long-term projects and then you're you know the attention to detail working at these mechanic shops when you got, when you decided to go to the trade school for welding what was that like um i was i was in college for like business and i just was like this is this is this is not oh really I, I started college for engineering and the bad choice was doing it in florida where all my friends were there for business, which, you know, was like kind of a right. joke. So I was doing as easily as much homework time as I was in class while they were all, you know, right. we're going to the beach to get drunk. And I'm like, yeah, okay, right. I got to do my homework. And I was like, this sucks. What college? It was uh, Palm Beach Community College. I was going to transfer to Florida Atlantic. It's not like by Boca right. Raton. Yeah, that would have been. Oh my god, I would. You could if you want to get work done, I don't it, recommend it, going to college in Florida. I actually, I, I my safety school was Rollins College, and I wanted to go bad because it's Florida. I grew up in New York. I'm like, let's get let's get something totally different. So let's go to Rollins College in Florida, and I was like, it'll be great. You know, I'm just gonna. 
go down to Florida. It'll be good for me. You know, a little different change of pace. And my mom was like, my parents were just like, you're not going to school in Florida, dude. You know, we know you. I grew up in the, like the, the early nineties in Manhattan. And it was like, and my parents were divorced. I was basically raised by myself. You know, it was like all systems go, uh, you know, fake IDs yeah. and, uh, and, and like, you know, uh, Korean markets to get as much, you know, <laughs> wine coolers and beers as possible. It was, you know, there was so much underage drinking that they were looking at me like, there's no way we're letting you go to Florida. <laughs> so I, so you went to, you went to Florida and then you were, you were, you were starting in business or you went, went I went in for engineering and I switched to business. So I'd have more free time because it was so much homework. Right. And I was like squeaking by with it because I was just like, uh, you know, I would try to rush through homework. Did you, and... Do you think your dad pushed you into going to engineering? No, I, or you just, you just I wanted it? to. Uh, you know, I was good yeah. at math and science. I was never, never an English history kind of guy. So, right. I I liked so, it. It's just so like you, the amount of it, it was so much homework and stuff. And and realistically, yeah. like what, when you're doing the the work, the math work, you're just like, am I going to use this? No, I doubt any engineers use any of this stuff when they actually get a job. They're mostly using formulas yeah, that are in I the mean, book anyway. But when you're in high school and you're learning math in high school, you think you're never going to use it until you, you t- yeah you basic use. math. I mean, of course, I, like you you need to be able to add and subtract and multiply and divide and you know other things. But I, just what if you start taking like you know analytic geometry and just like advanced calculus stuff? It's like to me, it just didn't feel like stuff I was going to need for life. Which maybe I'm wrong, you well, know. Maybe you know, I would have been in a better place if I finished through it, but who knows? I, I have friends who are engineers you know, and they're miserable. So like, I work so <laughs> many hours, and it's just like they they don't love it. When I talked to Jesse, he was talking about how school was not for him, and he hated. It, he didn't do well, and he talks about how he was in special ed, and then he hated college and stuff like that. But the fascinating thing is, is when Jesse got out of college, I mean, he really focused on very academic things. Like he focused on poetry. He was a writer. He was interested. He's fascinated with history and stuff like that. And it gets to the point where, especially now, and I'm talking to my kid a lot because with, you know, coronavirus, they're getting ready for, they're getting ready for school. New York is doing really well in terms of um, new infections, but they're still going to do distance learning, hybrid yeah, learning, yeah. they're calling it. They're so talking about that at our like school that. as well. Well, as a family, as a family, we're all talking about like, and I thought about what Jesse was saying about, you know, we talked about how, unfortunately, when you go to college, a lot of times, a lot of times when you go to college, you, um, you maybe you don't know exactly what you're doing. Like, well, like what you're saying is you thought you knew what you were going to do. And then it's almost like you're rolling the dice, hoping that you find something that's going to connect as opposed to waiting a little bit, knowing exactly what you want to do and then focusing exactly. Like uh, when I was talking to Jonathan Porter in the last episode, he didn't like school, but then once he realized he wanted to get into um, animal husbandry and, and being a farrier, he went. To, he knew, all right, this is where I'm going to go because this is what I want to learn because this is what I want to do. I think it's a very hard spot right now, especially, but like in your situation too, is to how do you tell young kids, how do you help them Instead of saying, let's go to, you know, you finish high school now, you got to go to the college. How do you get them into the direction? How do you focus their education to really, truly benefit them later in life? I think it's hard. I mean, I could, speaking from my it's experience, possible. like I wasn't 
focused at all when I was that age. Like I, I would say after yeah. after college and after trade school, like when I got the job at the art school, it was shortly after that that I actually started to get motivated to learn things. Before that, it was like I'm doing it because I have to. And right. I think that's a lot. Well, when you're young, you're like, you know, I want to party and have a life and stuff. You're not, you're not thinking as much about the future as you are when you get a little older. My parents, I wanted to, when I was in high school, all I was doing, my father was a painter and I was learning how to paint from him. Not well, he was a <laughs> shitty teacher, but I was so like fascinated by how he was painting. I was like, I was really into painting. I was really into art. I was make, into making stuff. And when I, and I thought that I thought, well, this is what I want to do. I should go to RISD, yeah, Rhode yeah. Island School of Design. That's where I, that was my number one choice. And my parents wouldn't let me apply. Because they were just like, you need a well-rounded yeah, like, education. Oh, my kid wants to go to art school. And then, and then they, I wanted to go to art school. I wanted to be an artist. I, I knew I was just like, I don't like math. I don't like English. I don't like this. I need to be a better, I need to be better at what I'm good at. And I thought that I was a good sculptor. And I didn't think I was a good sculptor. I didn't want to do any sculpture in high school. I thought I was going to be, a, I thought I had the potential to be a good painter if I really kind of like had more technical experience. And I think that, and they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't even let me apply, which was yeah. annoying. So, but it's fascinating to me with you because you go to school in Florida for um, uh, educate, uh, business and, and engineering. What made you say, fuck this, I'm going to technical school and I'm going to learn how to be a welder? Well, like I said, at first I, I switched to like a, a simpler um, degree program for business because of right. the situation I was in and I just wanted to right. hang out with my friends more. It was like a lack of focus situation. But it was when I got hmm. back that I, I, I was working in a different – was it when I get back? Oh, a, after the Mercedes job, I, I worked in several other shops, which were – a girlfriend at the time, her father owned several mechanic shops and body shops. So I worked with him for a while. So I was really into cars. That's is was that weird working for your girlfriend's no, father? No, I feel like I can still talk to him now, and she's psycho. <laughs> like I talked to him like yeah, like years back, and I get ran into him somewhere or something. And I it was great. Girlfriend, his daughter's probably nuts? the biggest blessing of being with her was, you know, <laughs> meeting him. Wow. And oh, I'm sure she won't listen to this or care, but. Well, we're, we'll be vague. We'll be vague. We'll she be knows vague. who she is. We'll be vague. <laughs> she knows who she is. <laughs> but her dad doesn't know no, who she is. No, but he just let me. At first, he's, he's like, yeah, come on. I had done a little experience with their Mercedes place, and he just like let me come work at his shop. Maybe you were maybe you were the good. Maybe he thought, saw you as this hardworking kid, and that maybe you'd be a good. I don't think he thought that in the beginning, but I think as time went by, yeah. he realized that I wasn't. I wasn't that That bad. shit happens. That yeah. shit happens. That shit happens. I actually worked at a shop where they ended up they ended up hiring the the, the boss ended up hiring his daughter's uh, boyfriend and I and I didn't work there anymore. I stopped. I would stop in and bring in donuts and just you know just say hi. And he would he introduced me to him and I was and he the kid left the room. I said you hired your daughter's boyfriend and he goes yeah. I said why well, are you out of your fucking mind? Now what are you gonna do? You gonna give this kid trouble all, every five minutes? What happens? They get in a fight. But as they break up, you're gonna fight. You're gonna fire them if you if they break up. 
And he just looks at me. He's like, ah, you'll be all right. I'll be all right. I'm like, this has got the recipe. For, like, how are you going to fire this kid? How are you going to fire this kid if they break up? Because, you know, he's cheating on her or something. I feel like we had, we had our, was, you know, we had our makeups and breakups. And I just worked through, I worked there. I worked through it with him. That might have been part of why he started to like me more. Because I was like, I still came to work every day. The, di- the diligent Cliff Dufton. You were there for the business. You I enjoyed it. I mean, you know. I like to work on the cars, and I, I think I veered off of that. A, a big part of it is because it's like it was so dirty, and welding's dirty, but like yeah. working as a mechanic or in a body shop, it's the oil and the grease, and like when you're the the body shop is probably even worse. Like the sanding, all the bondo plastic, and and the fumes yeah. is probably even worse. And it, most of those shops don't have heat or air conditioning or good ventilation. All right. So once you get past that, you go into you go into uh, trade school. You're a certified welder. Then you head to New York. The trade school was in New York, so I was commuting to there. And then after the, I did, I did very well at the trade school. So, uh, so at to, towards surprise. the end of it, the the head of the welding department um, asked me if I wanted to like go with him to visit possible job opportunities so he took me to several shops around the city so i looked at a couple like manufacturing shops in like brooklyn um and they were all paying in like the 20 dollar an hour range i want to say but there was just beginning beginning wage begin yeah beginning yeah but you could and they're cool shops with big equipment and stuff but you can see it's they're just banging out the same and whatever your job is like if you're a welder you're probably right. sitting behind that curtain and someone's handing you parts and you're doing like the same weld over right. and over and you know maybe it changes a tiny bit but then he took me to the art the right. art school job and it was they were like but these are the hours it was only i only had to work 20 hours a week to be full-time and get benefits and i was this is and you know the fact that it was art i was like this this seems like something i get into you like explore explore different things and not do the same thing over and over every day. So the job that you're in now is the first job you had after yes. technical school. Yeah. Been That's there crazy. F- 15 How years. long have you been there? Look at you. Look yeah. at you. I, were you, were you ever thinking about going to join the union? That was when I was in trade school. That's probably what I was. That's what I was thinking I would do. Cause all, all the guys who were with they all you, want, were that's all what they headed, wanted headed yeah, for because the, it's, it's, Big paycheck and big pensions and benefits. But it takes a while. Yeah, you have to go through the old apprenticeship stuff. And, and I, I could have tried I, that. I, I it's got, just when I saw the art job, I kind of just – I had a feeling that that's what I wanted to do. And did you have any art background? Not, nothing, nothing extreme. Not, nothing outside of like art cla- elective art classes. Because when I look at your work now, I when I in the beginning I was saying you know in terms of being well rounded, it there's a there's there's a few things that I'm I'm, I'm the art thing was always interesting to me because I never I I kind of didn't think you had a, a a background as you know having any technical art classes, but you created you created your work is more technical oriented than it is you know like a labor of let's just say a spontaneity there's there's a degree of uh that uh, in your wor- in the work that i've seen i mean i remember you know not within less than half a year you learn how to do repose 
you sent us a picture of yeah, Repose. You did of, of Bruce yeah. Willis. And it was just like, does this look like, who does this look like? I'm like, that looks like Bruce Willis. Like, yeah, this is Bruce Willis. I mean, you have, you have this. I was glad anyone guessed uh, it. I got, I got a lot of like oh, Dr. Evil. Listen. Vladimir Putin. That was, no, no. Oh, Mel Brooks. There was no, I actually, when someone said Mel no. Brooks, I was like, you know what? It does look like Mel Brooks. Dude, it doesn't, it looked, as soon as I saw it, I was just like, oh, what is he, what is Die Hard for? <laughs> what are you doing? And it was like, exactly. It was, it was this bald headed, it was this bald headed Bruce Willis, but. I don't know if I, Bruce I'm fascinated with you. Yeah. Ah, fuck Bruce. <laughs> don't worry about Bruce. Bruce got his own. He got bigger yeah. fish to fry than us. I, so so, so you get, you're in the art school. You're learning how to do all this stuff. You're helping these people. You're not doing critiques in the class. Uh, I do. Right? I mean, when I started, I did a lot more sculpture. But, uh, you know, it just, uh, you know, I started and I liked building big things. Like, I like small stuff, but I like big stuff. And I started to accumulate. Like, I sold some things. But, like, anyone who's an artist knows, like, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle to sell things. You know, a lot of the times it can it, – it's just, like, who you know or – I mean, th- don't get me wrong. There's plenty of artists who are just hands down – the skill level is just, like, unmatchable. But a, a lot of people, it's just – it turns into, you know, who you know. Like, some art you see, you're just like, that is just – that's a dot 100%. on a piece of paper. Like, who the fuck is buying this? But this is, I mean, that's a that's a longer story. That's a longer story that we can get into later in terms of, like, how art is done. Um, I actually kind of wanted to get into that a little bit. But how did you get into, I mean, I would have thought that if you're, you're out of trade school, you got a, you're a good welder, you get this position at, the, at this art school, was the first class intimidating? What did you, how did you prepare to teach I an think, art class. I think it was, I was, I was young. So I was 20, let's say I'm 37 now, 15 years. Uh, so I was like 20, 23 ish. Wow. Like 23, 23. So I was young. So I was definitely intimidated initially because a, a lot of the students there are older. It's a mixture right. of, of retired people who are doing it as hobby or really aspiring artists. And then there are, usually like the younger people who are around like out of college who are really more aspiring artists than doing it as a hobby because they, they need a career. So you were, so, and were your class, your classes weren't, all right, here's the project we're going to make, you know, <clears throat> this is the project. It was more along the long, 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 long the lines of teaching people how to use the equipment to kind of get what they Exactly. It's technical and safety at first. Okay. You know, you spend like a, a month, on that alone before you really, I mean, some people just get it and they can start things sooner, but I would say it generally takes a month, which is if someone's full time there, that's like 80 hours for the month. Did you, did you like it? Yeah. Oh, right off the, sh- right out of the bat, you liked it right well, off like the Well, like I said, bat? I was, you know, unsure of myself at first, but like after time went by and it's a lot of it is because you're, you're trying to teach people who are older than you. And sometimes they're like, Oh, I know this, or I know that. And I know better. Right. I know how many times yeah. someone's come in there and said, Oh, I already know how to weld. And it's the, yeah, like yeah. you said, it's the, the artist welder. And they're like, yeah, someone yeah, told me how to taught though. me how to flip the switch on and hit the button. I'll tell you the scariest thing that ever happened was I learned how to use oxyacetylene torches and the MIG welder from Ox my is art the first thing college. we teach. And, and we had the, uh, a representative from Smith, the, the guys yeah, who yeah. Smith yeah. is, the guys who mm-hmm. make regulators and torches and stuff like that. They came, 
to sh- just give us a tour and show us how to, you know, just show us their equipment. And it was like, a, it, was an, it was nice for us to see people from the company. And they were looking around. And the first thing they said is, we just want you to know, you know, for, with Smith, safety is number one. And we just want you all to know when you finish off, you know, working for the day, you always have to uh, bleed your regulators. You have to loosen the, you know, you want to make sure your regulators are, are loose. And then you bleed the, you know, yeah, you bleed yeah. your hoses and then you don't want to you don't want to have your your regulators where they're supposed to be. You want to loosen them up, get you know bleed them up and yeah, loosen yeah. them. Regular. <clears throat> I think the, I think the so diaphragm. All of a sudden, the regulator it wears yeah, the out. If you leave it you, you tight want, all the time. But so we're looking at the art teacher. We also look at the art teacher. The art teacher says, "Don't touch anything." <laughs> yeah. They didn't want. He didn't because we were all constantly like fucking around with you know the oxygen. We kept you know fucking around with the oxygen. And they said, "There's not enough oxygen. More need more oxygen." So he's just like, keep this, keep the acetylene at seven and keep the oxygen at 40. And, oh, no, no, keep it at the oxygen for brazing, yeah, yeah. keep it at 10. So like seven. And then 10. for cutting, keep it at like, yeah, seven and 10. And he said, don't touch it. Just turn it off and leave it alone. So the, the, the guy from Smith was, was like, what? You do that? And then he lifts, opened up this case and there was this oxygen regulator that had exploded. And my friend, Dan Levine, who I learned how to weld from, said, what happened to the guy who was standing next to that? And the guy from Smith said, he ate it. He ate it. So you got your acetyl, your oxygen is the one that's going to, they explode. The, 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 the regulators can't explode. So we were all like, our, our teacher doesn't know shit about this stuff. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to die in this shop because our teacher is teaching us this terrible technique. Safety techniques is just, you guys are going to fuck up this, you know, the, the regulators don't touch them. Just yeah. keep them where they are. And it was super dangerous. That's the most dangerous thing in, in our shop by far, the, the acetylene. The acetylene's bad. Oh, no, the oxygen. Well, both. Oxygen. I mean, the oxygen's kind of not bad on its own, but, you know, the acetylene's very volatile. It's even running what it on too high of a pressure to- can make it explode. I've never... Yeah, we had something explode. when I was at trade school. We had someone, I guess, they left, left the acetylene open when it was off and didn't realize... And it built up enough, and then some somebody lit a torch, spark, and it just it sounded like a bomb went off in the building. Like it shook the whole building. And no one got really? hurt. It just like you know, it sounds like a you know, it's a big quick flash, and and like a bomb. It just sends like a shock wave, and everyone's like, "What happened? Did a bomb go off?" And I think the only no one really got hurt. Just a lot of like singed hair. There was a lot of, I, I, when I was the art shop assistant, I was always afraid because I wasn't, in, I wasn't really supposed to do any changing of the tanks, but I always felt like there were, there, we had a acetylene with a manifold system. And I remember that for some reason the chop saw was facing the acetylene <laughs> tank. And all of a sudden we were walking, I was walking past and I saw this sliver of flame with that black. Yeah, the soot you know, from the acetylene. Soot kind of going up towards the ceiling. And I freaked out, and we didn't know what to do. And I grabbed the fire extinguisher, and I just let it off. I mean, it was it was enough that I was like, I was the one who was responsible. And I called the I we had to any time a fire extinguisher goes off, and we didn't know. I mean, it was like it was like from one of the lines. It wasn't like turn off the. I mean, it was enough of it, so it was something to be concerned about. And I was eighteen, seventeen, eighteen. What the fuck do I know? And I remember that we had gotten this message saying. If you have to, if you if you let off any of the um, fire extinguishers, you have to call security because they have to write a report. 
So we immediately call the security. This is like at 11 o'clock at night, you know, before an, before an art critique. And we filed the report. We did what we were supposed to do. The next day, the, the head of the sculpture department lit me up like, why didn't you call me? And you shouldn't have used the extinguisher. And, you know, now we have a thing. And now they're going to have reg- new regulations. And he wasn't a bad guy. It was just yeah. like, it was out of his control. And he felt like it could have been handled differently. And he had more experience than I did. And if I looked at it now, I wouldn't, you know, the first thing I'd Sorry, if you don't know, it's just, if I, you know. well, if, at this point in time, if I see a sliver of fire coming between the torch and the regulator, I'm not immediately going to go for the fire extinguisher. I was young and I was afraid. I didn't want I didn't want there to be, you know, we were heard about how acetylene is so volatile. I was afraid that I'm going to be responsible for everybody yeah. dying. You know, it was like a can it was like a can it was like a big candle of, of and I, you know, Fader grabs the fucking fire extinguisher. <laughs> next thing you know, it's like the teacher was the teacher was like you shouldn't have done that. You should have called me first. And why did you call security? And why did you use the fire extinguisher? And I was like, I did what I thought I was supposed to do. And it was this very much along the lines of experience. Now I'm just like, yeah. dude, dude, all you had to do is get a welding glove and just cover it and then turn the fucking, turn the fucking gas off. Yeah, what are you yeah. doing? I've seen like plenty of those things where students starts to panic and I know how easy it is to like put something, a certain things out. And like, it's all right, calm down. You know, they get so scared. Do you, you ever get, you ever get those students where they're like they got that f- the fresh jeans with their sweet? Oh yeah, yeah. They come out and then they go oh, yeah. catch on fire. I've, I put a friend of mine. I had put a couple, couple students set themselves on fire. Not bad, just you know, yeah. They got like frayed jeans or something. They're they're, they're yeah, frayed jeans. Frayed jeans yeah. is the best. I had a friend of mine who runs a uh, furniture company, and he had friend. He had you know he j- the jeans just came out of the dryer. He's welding away. He's got holes all, all over the place. And it, the fuzz from the from I mean it it was like it was like the, a wave of fire coming yeah, up his like legs. Tinder. Like all that, fu- yeah, it was just like tinder. And his whole his, both his legs go up, and I grab him, I put him out and stuff like that. And it wasn't a big deal. It was just like you know I was trying to get it before it went all the way up. I mean, it was he wasn't engulfed in flame. It was in the human torch, but he was he. There was enough of it like it was a scary. And I remember uh, at a reunion, maybe ten years ago or something like that. He introduces me to his wife and he says, this is the guy who, who, this is the guy who saved my life. He put me out. I was on fire. And he put me out. I was like, all right, let's just calm down a little bit. He had some fucking, he had some frayed jeans. We told you not to wear frayed jeans. We told you that there's a lot of fire going on. And you didn't <laughs> want to listen. And don't, let's just not pretend like I saved your life. Let's just relax yeah, a yeah. little. <laughs> when did you start to get into blacksmithing? When did you first see blacksmithing? When did you get into uh, it? Was, it was another one of my students. I had a, a student. Um, long time ago who, who came in, he was, he already did metal work. So he was from Austin, uh, and he came here more, more to just live in the city and use the, the shop as his, as a studio. And a lot of people kind of do that because it's so cheap. Yeah. And he was into blacksmithing. He did mostly like uh, metal sculpture out of car parts and like found objects. Yeah. So like, scary. yeah, he would make, um, <laughs> the worst, <laughs> he would the worst. I'm already yeah, telling you. He would take uh, these uh, like valve um, for for the for an engine in a car. They were like yeah. uh, valve arm, no, not valve arms. The valve rockers. It's a part that, uh, and, and basically he would forge them into the body of a bird, and then he'd make like a nut for the head, and like forge out little tapers for the beak, and he'd make these little like birds, and he'd make the wings out of like transmission gears. Ugh. So <laughs> yeah. 
I hate I hate found object art. It's yeah. the worst. It is literally the worst. It's the is the cheapest move of all. He, time. he made some nice but stuff he, though. Like he would also do a lot of sheet metal stuff. At he would make like faces and stuff. Where just very basic tooling, basically making like swage. And we still use. I've remade all these tools in the shop, and everyone uses them all the time. Basically making swages out of like little pieces of pipe, just different size pipe, and then and you then could dome things in them. And he would make you know f- faces out of sheet metal and like tack weld them together and. And then you and then you visited him, or how did you get into doing? Yeah, it so like I was, you know, that, that's another beautiful thing about the, this job at the school is like the diversity of people and their work is like, you know, I'm helping yeah. them with a lot of things, but I learned a lot from them as well. And he he ended up inviting me out to his place in Austin, and he just has like a really cool place. It's like much as you hate that found object stuff, it's like he has it's almost like a junkyard of like organized stuff. Yeah. Like piles of horseshoes, like piles of brake pads, like just all this. And it was just like so much stuff, but like organized. So it's kind of like very interesting. And he taught at uh, ACC, it was, uh, Austin Community College. So he take he took me there to sit in on a class, and that was the first time I saw a power hammer, like a big power hammer in operation. A guy, uh, William Bastis. I think his name was, was teaching a class on how to make a leg vise. So he was making a leg vise from scratch under the power hammer. Wow. And he was drifting, you know, the, the uh, eye hole where the screw goes through. Yeah. Uh, he was he was drifting that. And he's like, oh, we don't have a drift. He's like, so I'm just going to make a drift right now. So he just pulled out a piece of round bar, like heated up, tapered it on both sides, and then immediately used that tool to like make drift the hole through the leg vise. And it was a pretty big leg vise, probably like, Four or five inch jaw. A small leg vice is yeah. a big leg vice. If you're watching someone build yeah, a vice. watching them forge one, the long what? leg of the leg vice. That's amazing. And it just was like watching the power hammer was like so, so cool to me. Uh, it was a big, I think it was like Chambersburg or something. Oh, jeez. The ACC huge. is, I would love to go back someday because it was a long time ago. But they just have an awesome blacksmithing program a long time ago it's under 15 years yeah, ago but still like, 10 years 10 years ago right, no, probably you, 10 I'll years ago break. i'll give you a break i'll give you a break on i'm considering years. how long i'm in blacksmithing for it's like i wish i you know i was just beginning in it if i knew what i knew now i'm back there i think i would realize what more things were you know what i mean a lot of it I was just like what is this what is didn't know what it was. So you come back to New York, revitalize, and now you wanted to get into black. Yeah, I just started like with making little little things, and then, and John uh, was in my class. You know, also using it. Yeah, Kangas John. John was in my class, mostly using it as studio space as well, uh, and that's how we met and kind of jumped in that journey together a bit. But was but was he a blacksmith when he came to? Well, he did. It's so just a mixture. Was, you know, it's metal art with a little hint of blacksmithing. It's kind of, of just, you know. But I mean, you both got into blacksmithing kind of hardcore at the same time. You both had like this metalworking experience. But I mean, he was like more of a formally trained sculptor. I don't remember. I don't seem to remember him getting involved in, in forging him until he went to the Adirondacks Folk School or something like that or the New England School I think- of Metalwork. So you at this. At the same time, you guys started to get into blacksmithing at the same time, right? Kind yeah, of. I would say so, probably, as far as I remember. I think a big part of it is, like, 
like when you're trying to make art and stuff like that, a lot of times you're like, I need this tool and like this doesn't exist. Right. And initially a lot of the tools it made were like these Frankenstein things that are like scrap metal and everything's like welded together and hideous. And then you realize like I can forge this thing from a solid piece and not only is it going to be way better, it's going to look way better. And I think that's kind of where, where it blossomed from, like the tool making. And, but also – your job allowed you a lot of leeway in regards to, you know, you're paying to get the, you know, keep the shop up. You're, I mean, you're being paid to teach these people and you're, you're being paid to like maintain the shop. And all of a sudden you're just like, we need these things in order to get these things done. So you're actually being paid almost to learn how to make that shop better. You're, and you're not married, no children at the time. You have a little bit more leeway in regards to what your desire. Oh, totally. When I started there, it was it was very minimal. The shop, you know, we had like an angle grinder, angle grinders, chop saw, MIG yeah. welder, uh, and you know, right. hand tool, basic hand tools, That's... but not a ton more than that. And as right. time went on, and we got more and more students, uh, I got a little more, you know, leeway to like make the decisions on what machines we have and how the shop was organized. And over the course of that you know, 15 years, it's, it's turned into something that, like a small shop that has like so much. We have, uh, it's hard to even list it, but. I don't know any, I mean, my old, my old the metal shop I learned at in my, the college that I went to, there was no blacksmithing at all. There was an anvil that we just like lumped around. I mean, we just hit stuff on, but I mean, it was just a flat and a piece of steel here and there. It wasn't, we, there were no forges and stuff like that. And even now when they redid the art building at my old college, they had, they wanted to show me the, the art, you know, the sculpture facility and there are more MIG welders and now there's a TIG welder and this and the other thing, but there still wasn't any blacksmithing. And I think that it, it's really, it's become one of these things with, uh, with metal sculpture, the reason why metal sculpture sucks so much, and as far as I'm concerned, is because there is that there the forging you're actually sculpting, as opposed to when you're welding found objects together, you're not losing the vocabulary of what that found object is. So then all of a sudden, it's automatically going to be clever, or cute, or clever. Clever is the right word. So I always find that, especially with found objects, you're you can never shake the vocabulary of that previous item once especially once you know what it is even if it's a chain link even if it's you know no matter what it is if it's a part you say oh yeah that's from this and that's from that and then your sculpture goes from being meaningful to having this vocabulary that'll never be shaken never be shook and it is it becomes clever and then it becomes yeah. kitsch i generally don't i'm not a huge fan of the found art sculpture stuff but there's definitely some people out there who take it to a different level well, there's a difference between found object artists or metal sculptors in general. And I hate myself because I, for years, I considered myself a steel sculptor, which was just like the stupidest thing of all time. It was because I wanted to people, I obviously subconsciously wanted people to think that I wasn't fruiting around with marble. Yeah. You know, it was like, <laughs> I was, I, but the, what interests me with you is, is very clear that, especially when you saw that guy um, drifting the hole in that uh, leg vice, the idea of creating tools to make tools is something that you're on the, known for. Uh, what I love about it too is it was just like on the spot. It was like a spur of the moment. Like, oh, I don't have yeah. this. I'm going to make it right now. Right. Well, I mean, you, your history now, I mean, what you're known for, besides just your hammers and your tongs and your tooling, 
is the first thing I when we first met and I went to John's spot and you guys obviously you and John kind of have a space together John's place where you have presses that you built these giant hydraulic presses the first time I went I got I got you guys invited me over and I stopped on by I'm not too far from John I'm in an hour and some and you guys built this 16 ton press for Colin Fung and I'm looking at it thinking like I've never seen something like this before it was just such this beautiful object and the welds were so you were but you were you just told me ah we got to paint it and I was just like oh fuck you shouldn't paint this thing this thing looks so awesome the welds were like dimes like it was just like it was as if every single weld was like done downhill and all the the beads were like pristine and everything just looked everything looked like it was not made by a person everything looked like it was made by a company and what got you guys into like getting into going from building like drifts and shit to building presses and well, grinders. I think this presses and grinders are just like another tool in a way. It's just more complicated. But it's a giant – it's super complicated. What did you know about making hydraulic presses? Well, I mean I had, I bit, I had you know, fabrication, like building experience, like mechanical experience, just from everything, from working with my dad and on cars. So, you know, a lot, a lot of times I look – the first time I built the press is because I saw a press someone had built out of basically scrap metal. And I was like looking at the price of it. I'm like, I can do this for less. So I built the first one. I built it in my basement actually by myself. So it was it was a struggle with like the big heavy heavy metal and stuff. And after I built that, I was like, ah, yeah. oh, now I, I, I could do this better. But I was like, I, I can't do this alone again. I'm like, this this thing is so heavy. Like our, our 25 ton press now, I think it weighs like 900 pounds in total. So like the, the main frame of it is a couple hundred pounds. Like I just don't need to be flipping that thing around, that around. To, to do the welds yeah. like by myself. You just said something that is one of those things I've been really thinking about you a lot. And, and when, I, when I bought the guillotine tool from you and actually you built a 2x72 grinder for Jesse that was just like, I mean, it was just a marvelous. It was just an incredible, it was a small, it was smaller than the, Beaumonts that I had, and at the time when I was using Beaumonts, and it was just this beautiful with a with a uh, BFD. It was just such, and everybody at the Hammer Inn was like all over it, bright yellow. You painted yeah. bright yellow for Jesse's That's by request, job. yeah. And it was, it was, it was, it was this amazing. You had thought about all the different features that you wanted to have. You finished the whole thing, and then you were saying to me, "On the next one, I'm going to do this." This is what interests me about you. I don't feel like I feel like you're you're similar to when that you're when you're with your dad and you guys are like you finish the project and you sell it, let's do the next one. I know that when you build these pieces of equipment, whether the press or the grinders or the guillotine tools, you're always thinking about how to upgrade. There's always something you say, oh, next time I'm gonna add this, you know, the set screw here, and that's gonna be able to let you do this. And you're always working on the next uh variation of what you're doing you're never satisfied yeah, i guess that can be a, a blessing and a curse well i mean it's it shows it shows the natural inclination for real evolution but and it's also like it's it's not being satisfied with your work and you kind of that's how you get to that degree of excellence don't you think yeah i i hope so yeah if, i mean if, if you the, look the at the downside hammers, of it is like you you put I mean, everything, the guillotine, the belt sanders, like I built versions of them for myself to try out and then made modifications and then built ones. Like before I, 
I would never make something for the first time and then want to like sell it to someone because I always find something. Even with something I'm told, like I've made a new belt grinder since Jesse's that's, you know, got, takes three arms. It, uh, it tilts, uh, same thing like VFD, all that. Um, and I think it's a, a bigger upgrade from the last one, but so you put so much time and thought into it and then you build it and you're like, this is great. And then it's like the day later, like something pops in your head and you're like, Oh, I could have done this. Yeah. But you, but see, that's the difference. That's the, but, you, but you, and then you make that mental note yeah. for the next one without being like, I fucked this whole thing no, up and throw still, the garbage. Yeah. Like this is fine, but the next one's going to no, be I would have built it in the first place if I didn't have like the confidence in it, that it was going to be a good, a good thing. But you understand that's the, that's the successful mindset of a maker who wants to get better at things. You're, you're seeing a dis, you're seeing a result from something that you've devised that to fix a problem that you wanted to fix. And then you're saying to yourself, ah, the next one is going to be better. I mean, that's what I try to always say, especially to young knife makers or whatever is you should never truly be satisfied with what you're doing. There's always room for improvement. And there's nothing wrong with saying, all right, this one could have been better and, that, and the next one's going to be better. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I never think anything I make is perfect. There's always room for improvement. Well, I think that I think there's a lot of people groaning right now. I think when, when I talk, when, when your name comes up, generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of like that guy. There's n- I'm never <laughs> in my life. It's always like <laughs> never with the exception of John. The only person who's saying that guy sucks is John Ariana. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's just because you guys have this, you guys have this crazy relationship that it's like this, uh, it's this bizarre relationship. That's very adorable. It's a love hate. At the same time, it's, it's very, it's yeah, it's, it's adorable and obnoxious at the same time. I'm sure it's, it's very, very obnoxious you know, to people like listening in on it. Whereas <laughs> like, we're kind of like used to it. We just, we, yeah, we probably no, get a it, laugh it gets out of a little, it. Well, it's it it is it is what John and, and Cliff share the space at John's pace uh, place, and then there's 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 this there's you guys have this deal worked out where basically you, he picks you up, brings you over to his shop in New Jersey. You guys work on whatever, either a fabrication project or a, or a press that you've sold for someone or whatever, or fixing you know a power hammer or something like that. And then he drives you home, and that's the deal. Yeah. And then he bitches the yeah. whole time. <laughs> I, I don't blame yeah, he him. He bitches I the mean, whole time. You know, it's he, he's doing a lot of he's doing a lot that's like Schlepping. benefiting me. So I try to do what I can to benefit him too. You know, it's yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it's working yeah, out that, fairly for both of us. Yeah, you never know. Oh no, 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 you. You guys have created this, uh, like it's it's not it's it's more like Laurel and Hardy. I mean, that's an old for a lot of our listeners who are you know they're fifteen or sixteen. They're not going to know that's that a is. tough reference. But you watch a little you watch a little Laurel and Hardy, and you got that's John and, and John and Cliff is Laurel and Hardy, which is it. it, it but it is it is sometimes it, to me. I always I always now that I'm at an age where you know I'm about forty six. I, I everything to me is th- that's extraneous is too much work. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point now where like, I can't deal with drama. I can't deal with playing around. I can't deal with any messing around and I need to be as very clear as possible. And, and I, I wouldn't be able to handle, I wouldn't be able to handle all the, uh, all the nonsense, but I mean, you guys seem to do. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I think like we have a reasonably good system in terms of like when we actually work, like, well, 
you know, we, we usually have at least one or two jobs that are kind of like in the works and we'll spend, you know, he'll, he gets me pretty early, like 6.30 in the morning or something and we get back to his place at like wow. 7.30 and we'll work for the majority of the day, maybe until like around like 4 o'clock or something, we'll focus on the projects that that are like paid for or just need to get done or whatever and then it hits a certain time where we're like, okay, like we can fire up the forge and like drink a beer and dick around and oh, curse like, at each other. There's dick. You have dick because, around yeah. time. I like dick. I mean, I get home. I, you, you, I don't he, he usually takes me back at like 10 o'clock at night, sometimes later. So it's a long, brutal day, but I still find it to be worth it. I don't ever have time for dick around time. I wish I, I wish I did have time. For this, this is, this is my, this is our Saturday. So we're working five yeah. days a week and then sacrificing a week then uh, a, a weekend day to do this, make more money, but also so get a like, little bit of time in on our own projects, which are sometimes they're like, you know, if it's a hammer or something, it's something we want to sell or need to sell, but it's fun. I think it's fun as long as we're not mass producing them, like pumping out 20 or 30 hammers in a day. Like so giving people. your, so without pan, without pandemic time on a Saturday, you're gonna have work time, and then you're gonna have five hours of dick yeah, around yeah, time. Yeah, something like that. That's pretty. That's pretty sweet. That'd be. That's a very good. That's a good reward system. Yeah. That's the reward system. Is like because if you dick around in the beginning, you're never gonna get to getting. If we have a lot of things to do, we'll just we'll do we'll do it the entire day. But I like yeah. to think part of the benefit of sacrificing a Saturday is that we get to do something that's more fun. Something I wanted to talk to you about was I was trying, I was thinking about, you know, you and I are, are very, very, very different and our backgrounds are very different. And one of the things that, I mean, my relationship with my father was different than yours and your father. And one of the things was my father was an incredible painter and his painting style, which he kind of passed down to not only me, but he passed on to his, uh, my sisters is it was a lot to do with spontaneity. So the way that his paintings were, he would have a, um, he would use the, his paintbrushes or palette knives and he would do these big uh, street scenes or building scenes or architecture scenes. And then what you'd, you'd really see the spontaneity of the brushstroke was really important. It wasn't, it wasn't like this degree of, of uh, you know, realism. Realism wasn't out the door. It was very expressionistic. And he would use different colors and he would almost color choices. You'd be like, what? what are you doing there? And like, oh, yeah, it all worked out in the end. So when he kind of passed that along to me and my sisters, it wasn't about precision. It was about the, it was almost about like this joy in the humanity of it all. And that was something that was always from a young age when I would do my, any kind of paintings I would do. It was about the process. It was about the process of the paintbrush. It was the process about with watercolor it was like lying a little bit of paint down and then going almost like more, it was more like a screen mm. printing. And what I'm trying to get to is when I got to work at the center for mental arts and my first real teacher was Uri Hoffi, his style of forging fit that profile perfectly. He liked the humanity in forging. He liked to see mishits. He liked to see, um, he liked to see these little parts that showed you yeah, humanity. Shows, and it, and it was a very, it was a very easy transition for me because that's what I knew when we were doing paintings 
we would. Tr- I remember. I remember. My sister was trying to do. Uh, what are you doing? Sorry, my computer's doing? getting close to dying, so I'm just plugging it in. I'm good. We're plugged oh, I in. I thought maybe you were like. I thought you were. I thought you were building. No, like no, another no, I was at three percent. I was like, let me, let me plug. Because I know that. <laughs> I know that John is going to say to me, what was that so all what about? Are, like an hour and 11? What was that? He said, he goes to me, he goes to me when, when, when Jesse was on, he was, he, he, he sends me a message saying, who's doing the pen? Who's <laughs> clicking the pen? Who's, who's clicking the pen? So, so what I was getting at was Uri Hoffi's style of like allowing the peen hits to be, you know, like a cross peen hit when you're, even when you're forging the cheeks of a hammer or something like that, you want to see that humanity of it. And it was a very easy thing for me. When I first started seeing guys like you and John and Jake Farum and Pat Quinn, it was something that I was not used to. It was almost like the difference between somebody who was an expressionistic painter who was, was about the, you know, the, the joy of the spontaneity as opposed to a realism. You know, your, your work and your style with those guys is that super clean, this is not handmade, no way you could have done this with a hammer kind yeah. of feel. I, you know? I try to aim for that, I guess. I mean, I do like that. I do. I mean, oh, that's part of forging. I like is that it's like you know got that handmade aspect to it. I guess so. You do it enough. No, but I mean, like, oh, I want to see how, if I can make it better and less less ding marks. And well, that's when 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 Hoffy would teach us, and he'd see somebody at the end. They finished the project or whatever it was. Doesn't even matter what it was. You could see that they were doing a lot of these light planishing all over the place. They weren't taking it out. They were taking it out of the heat, and then they were just like tidy, trying to knock down some of the yeah, the, yeah. the uh, ding marks. And he would yell. He say, "Stop! You're done." <laughs> and he would say, "What are you doing? What are you doing? It's finished. Stop! Fuck! You know you're gonna fuck it up." He would say, "He's like, you want to see the humanity. You want to see that this was done by hand." I, I still I, have I, a lot know of you, my, my early hammers that I made that I would never sell or show to anyone. So I, I think I got all the humanity out in those ones. Well, but I mean, they got plenty. Of, see, <laughs> they're that's all the marks. Is, There's like not a clean I, spot on them. When I've learned how to forge with you forging hammers, like we never did that either. We never did making to really, we made tongs as an, as a, we made tongs and stuff. But when we got to the point where we're making hammers and stuff like that, and I worked with you guys, I was really looking to like, let's try this new style. Let's try, to me, it was a new style because I was unaware. I mean, when I first started blacksmithing, social media barely started. There was Facebook, but that was about it. So I wasn't really, and then we would see stuff in Abana, but I mean, with the shitty pictures, I mean, you couldn't see anything anyway. And no one was, I couldn't see, I didn't know about Jake Farum until, I would say like seven years ago, six or seven years ago, maybe seven or I think John Ledford had bought like a bottle opener from him. Instagram had just yeah. kind of started and he had, he saw a bottle opener from Jake or like, a, I think it was a bottle opener or one of those, you know, Thor hammer 10 uh, pet yeah. or something. And that's the first time I'd have heard him. But that style was so that style that I, in my mind, I call it, I think of it more like that new style of like that super crispy, cleanness but the funny thing is it's not new it's just the fact that i only learned from hoffy and when i first started forging i didn't know there was anything other than yeah. Hoffie Hammer. Yeah, yeah you know but i think that i think that like talking about your precision and and the things that you do and the, the ability for you to i i mean like you just knocked me out some this beautiful hammer with this uh maple handle and in size you incised all this great stuff and then you made this you know just the spoon the spoon carving knife you you just kind of just this is a new thing for you and 
I know you do a lot of. Uh, I just got. A, I get a lot of messages about you from Steve Schwarzer. Oh yeah, he's he's a good uh, guy. Steve Schwarzer is like he's trying to get you down to Florida bad. He wants he needs he wants a he wants a piece of you. Down I think, I think he, that'll have to be he's not been trying to get, summer. I know I know Florida. Yeah, Florida this, summer no, this, is like. <laughs> from what I understand, now Florida is probably not the best place to be. But Will Stelter is down there with Steve. Steve Schwarzer, master uh, bladesmith, one of the best uh, knife makers in the world, one of the oldest living master bladesmiths, youngest uh, to be master bladesmith, oldest, uh, I think oldest, I don't remember. He's not the oldest bladesmith, but he's the oldest, I guess, in in amount of time or something like that. But he's been trying to, he wants to get you down there bad because of your tooling. One of the things that he knows is how innovative you are in terms of that idea of, finding a need for something and figuring out yeah yeah i've made some tooling for him he's also he's given me a a ton of advice when i I, you know i've only done a few damascus knives like from scratch and he was very happy to help he's got good advice well what's next for you what's next for you i i don't know i want to know i see i i almost feel like i almost feel like you got it all you got you got the you got the the house you got the shop you got the bigger shop with John. You got the job where you're, it's not like you're an accountant during the day. I mean, you're actually working with your hands and making stuff that you can make for your job, which also benefits your work personally. You're in the right vein of what you're going to do. You have it all. I mean, technically proficient in everything. I call you the wizard. You came up here once. I needed help with my, my tire hammer. I picked you up at the train station. You had a little bag, and it was just always a hand file. And a sharpie, <laughs> and you fixed my, you fixed my, you fixed my dies with a sharpie and a hammer. Oh, yeah. You know, you're the wizard. Yeah, remember yeah, that? yeah I remember. Goddamn mess. Those were some. But so I want to know what the what's, what's next, next for you. You got it all. I want to know what's next. I want to know. I want to know. I want to know why you're not. You yeah, know, I think ideally taking over the world. <laughs> I don't want to take over the world. I just want to, you know, enjoy what I do and be. The happy life, I guess, is what most people should want, right? Happy life. But, I mean, what gets you, what makes you satisfied? What gives you, what gives you satisfaction? I mean, I love, like, you know, I love just, like, tinkering in my shop. And, you know, as as night, as good as what I have is here in the city, the, the I could, I, I'd rather have, like, a, a different shop set up than dungeon basement of a building. Right. Um, you know, yeah. ideally, I'd like to have, you know, maybe something... you know a house a small house a little property and really have like a nice shop that i can really have everything everything i want in one place organized the way i want it like i my my basement is i think relatively well organized but it's not mine and i know someday i'm going to move it all somewhere else and i know moving it in was awful you know but i was bringing all this heavy stuff down the stairs so when i come out it's bringing it all up up to a truck oh, so i know i know what you have i know what you're gonna do i i'm gonna say it right here right now you're gonna call chris zepp make yeah. everything shop of the handmade podcast he's the king of moving so we're gonna get him over there and he's gonna help he's gonna move you out in the day i almost i almost wouldn't wish it on my worst enemies to like help me move yeah, yeah. i never ask people <laughs> to help me move i think, I think next the, time I think i'm just gonna obnoxious. i'm gonna hire a company but that's like another would you can do you think do you think you let's just say let's just say you're you 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 moved into your house your new house you got your shop the way you want it what do you want to do you want to stay at the art students league or do you want to like make hammers and tongs you want to make equipment 
Dufton Industries. What do you want to do? You know, I don't, I don't know. You know, because part of, I think part of what makes the the forging and that work fun is that it's uh, a little like few and it's not few and far between. But it's just it's not something I'm doing eight at eight You're ten hours a day. It. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have the ability to you have the ability to not depend yeah. on it. So you can kind of enjoy those little moments because everything else. Been I like, you know, I like teaching. I like doing classes, I guess, in a dream world that have my, you know, again, like house, my shop, everything and be able to kind of you know, sell the stuff I make. But also it'd be cool to do like workshops and things like that. Um, it's not in the cards right now. I know we we're supposed to do a workshop with you. We were supposed to do a workshop with uh, Jimmy Duresta. Um, right. You know, we wanted to do some on, on our own at John's. Uh, we, we're still tooling well, up I mean, to do those classes because I know one day we will be able to. Yeah, uh, but anytime we've well, done it in the past, rec- this been, is a recent. You know, it's it's a it's a long day, but it's it's fun and people people get to learn stuff and it's I think it's better money than actually just making the, the tool making in general. But it's t- it's teaching. But yeah, no, it's 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 exa- It's not something you, you want to do. You don't want to do workshops five right. days a week. But like you do one on the you, you know you, one a weekend or two a month or whatever. It, it can help you. It is yeah. exhausting. It is physically exhausting. But yeah, I, I, no, definitely. When when things get back to normal, we're definitely going to do something. Uh, yeah. Not to mention, I forgot you are the. I forgot to mention your uh, pedigree as being the president and the leader and the founder of the Modern <laughs> Forge. Well, which the, is the seven seven blue seven blue editor's choice blue ribbons of championships. Yeah, that was one of my one of my favorite times. That. The the Maker Fair, uh, Makers Camp was really fun too. Like I love to do those kind of events more often. Also, you know, with you know, it's it's fun to forge with you guys and get to like teach with you guys and demonstrate with you guys and and, and just hang out. The Maker Fair. Maker Fair was something. Maker special. Fair was yeah. And just if you we didn't don't know what know, to expect going into that, and it was just like a blast. It was just like, uh, you know, my face was hurting from smiling and laughing after that weekend. It took a while to come down. Maker from Fair, it. for those who don't know, Maker Fair. I'm pretending you guys don't know. Maker Fair is this big event that they had in Queens, New York, and they had they had ninety thousand people there every day, and and somehow with one connection of of uh of cliff they wanted to know if he wanted to demonstrate and he grabbed cliff he grabbed john and do you want to do it and and then we're gonna he wanted to come up with the idea we have to have a name and the modern forge because makes it a little bit more like not just some it, was, it came down to like i'm, I'm looking at the application i'm like i need to throw a name in here and i think i just kind of did it on the spot and it, it, it worked it's out. a great yeah. name oh i mean it's like the perfect name for for because i mean it really does make it seem like it's not like dudes with you I think know, it's kind of it kind of yeah. is what we do it, it's a modern bird version of forging we're using you know like a press is a pretty new piece of equipment in terms like power hammers have been around for a while yeah. but you know initially it was like you know uh water mill driven <laughs> hammers thing things like right. that uh, right you know. So we want we all you grab me and you grab Jesse and Carrie and John and we schlepped all this stuff down and we got this amazing space in the middle of, you know, hundreds of booths 
and we did a forging demo and it was like we were right in the middle and we were screaming and hollering we got a megaphone we were yelling at people and making jokes and it was an incredible event jimmy duressa was hanging around with us the whole time that was the first time i ever met him and we met chris zepp there we met uh yeah, brett, brett uh, yeah. mcafee skull and spade 13 there all those guys um uh keith Deason was down there we had all, all sorts of makers were down there and also and at the last so for the two days we were just fucking around uh cliff had he brought his press and then he would get pieces of steel and he would get them real hot and i'd yell see it's nice and smush it and he'd smush it under the press and then we'd walk people oh and then we'd you know make hammers and make all this stuff and there was the sparks and the stuff and it was it was awesome and the best part was and this is you know i i, I attribute this to you and john is that all the editors there was like what 10 20 editors or something like that they would go around on sunday and hand out their choices this wasn't i'm not when i say i say this seven blue ribbons i say this is a badge of honor because all there were like maybe like 20 different uh 20 different uh, 10 or 20 different judges or editors and they'd all hand out their the ribbons of who they thought was the best and then one after the other one all of a sudden we got one ribbon we're like all right look at that blue rib editors blue choice and then one and then another guy and then another guy and another guy and we got seven blue we get the most that was icing on the so cake the i was most. so blown away i mean they said only a few other people have ever like got that many or a few. i think they that, said somebody got I'm, nine once or something like maybe that was like we it was like they kept on coming and bringing us more and it was like we created this awesome thing. You know, the funny part was about Maker Fair was, you know, it was like Arduinos and like and like laser beams and three <laughs> D printers, and then there you have these like, yeah, and then you have these dudes all dressed in black and and uh, and and all these people dressed in black, and we have hydraulic presses and anvils, and and we're just screaming and hollering at the top of our lungs. We're doing the exact opposite of modern. And we, it was like uh, it was the most exciting of the at the whole event. And unfortunately, the whole company went out of business. That's the shitty part. Maybe the, I think they just you know I, I think they're not completely out of business, but they didn't do it that year. They obviously didn't do yeah. it this year. But yeah, maybe so maybe fun. someday they'll be back in uh, Corona Park. I, I it's will funny that it's Corona, Corona Park, Park, of course. And they better not they better change the name of Corona Park. No <laughs> yeah. one's going to be going. But that is definitely one of the highlights as a metal worker. Of my, all the years I was a metal worker, that is definitely a highlight, a highlight weekend for me. I know we were all talking to each other. I'm still smiling, and this is so much fun. Absolutely. We was awesome. I was so nervous. Such before. A good time. I was like, we're you know we're going into oh, like we tech it. world, and we're doing like something out of the yeah. dark ages. But I was like, screw it, yeah. you know, let's do, let's do it, take a chance. I was like, you guys are there with me. It wouldn't have been the same without all of you. Well, I mean, we had it. We decided to go in confident and have yeah. a good time. And then I just started. I brought a megaphone and I started megaphone yelling at everybody. And that was, and that was, and that was the fun part. Is I had my my hat over my eyes, my sunglasses, so I couldn't see anybody. Just like this podcast, I don't want to see anybody. And then I just started yelling at people, and we yeah. had a good time. Um, with that said, I have I reached out to some friends of yours, and I had I had asked them to ask you some some questions. Some of them are good. Some of them are not <laughs> what good. What do we got? And I'm just going to go out and just say right off the bat, Dave has let me down. Dave asked me some dumb question. He's like, I want a deep, I want a deep uh, answer from this bullshit. I'm not even going to answer the question. Dave, you got to do, you got to work a little harder. 
It's love hate with Dave. Yeah, I love him one day, and then the next time it's like, <laughs> yeah, fucking Dave. So the first question comes from Chris Cash, Mount underscore Philip underscore Metal underscore Works. Uh, how do you manage your time so well between all the things you want to do and the things that you have to do? What do you think about that? Um, I would say biggest part of it is sacrificing a tremendous amount of my social life. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, I I try to work on the things that need to get done as much as possible. If they ever start to frustrate me or anything like that, I put them down and do something I really want to do so I can get back, like, that feeling of wanting to do this stuff in general. You know, I have se- I, I have I've been, sev- like several as an understatement uh, projects going on at any given time, and some are going on for months, even small ones. Well, just you know, they're unfinished. You've hit something on the head where it's like you don't have a social. I mean, you're not married. You don't have children. You're you're you know you do have these other jobs, but you've been able to figure out ways in which to be as efficient as possible with your time. I actually, I mean, I'm making. I've been watching this. This uh, I don't know if you have Netflix, but I've been watching The Last Dance. I don't yeah, know if you know about that. That's the the Michael Jordan and the and the Chicago oh, Bulls yeah. document series. It's the best thing I've ever watched on TV. And it is this extraordinary, in-depth look at Michael Jordan and the Bulls during the 90s, which was like my favorite. I mean, that's when I watched basketball. I loved it. And and it's an incredible story, but it just talks about his drive and his devotion, his devotion and his drive. And I think that that idea of efficiency and drive is the most important thing. I, I don't think, you know, and there's a lot of sacrifice, you know. And I, and I see that you sacrifice a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's kind of a choice you got to make. I mean, I, 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 I get uh, some things done and I, or, you know, like social life stuff. Try to go on vacations once. So I, it, sometimes it's good to escape. Sometimes to say, oh, I always say, oh, I need to get on more vacations. And I just don't. But it's good when I do. Like, you know, I don't <laughs> go away for a week. My hands are actually clean for once. That, that my, my wife always makes jokes that when we used to go to the Caribbean, we haven't gone to the Caribbean in quite a while, that I, I needed the, the Caribbean water would make my hands like here. Yeah. Like the, the ocean water. After those vacations, you're like, oh my God, yeah. my hands are actually immaculate. Oh, like I dude, haven't seen soft, this. Soft. No calluses, no cuts. It was like, it, it, was, it was this incredible thing. Um, and that kind of dovetails into this because I know that every year you go out to uh, the Pacific Northwest to visit your family, and it's not just it's not just all chilling out. You end up going to uh, Ballard Forge a lot. I know that you hang out with Jake Farum, and I got questions from the both of those oh, guys. Oh yeah, yeah. I reached out to Steve Howe. I reached out to Steve Howe at Ballard Forge. If you're not following Ballard Forge, Steve, what Steve Howe does is extraordinary. He's he's he does things like beautiful sculptures with old school rivets and riveting machines and his just the technical proficiency of what they're doing over Ballard is amazing. And I reached out to Steve and I asked him to ask a question for you. And he said, I, he asks, um, what do you think the best way is to become self-sufficient? Oh man. I don't know if I'm the yeah. right person. Well, you ask. are self-sufficient. Uh, yeah, I guess, but I don't think I've got it all down. Uh, you know, not, not yeah, exactly I mean, where I, I mean, want to be, but well, well, all right. So, all right. So let's just say, let's just say, let's just say 
what do you think the best way to be self-sufficient is? I'm hoping I'm on the right track here. And that is just like working really hard and, you know, yeah, saving up and yeah, I mean, just stay motivated, you know, not, not, not dick around too much. Everyone needs to yeah. do it a little bit to like let off steam, but that's why I'm always trying to like make new things. You know, if you, if you're doing the same thing all the time, you're kind of not going anywhere. I do like the fact that you end up in, you invest, you invest in equipment and you invest in equipment that's going to last you a long time. I know that you bought that beautiful uh, anvil from uh, that, that Coles. Oh yeah. The Coleslaw. What did you get? The Coleslaw anvil, the beautiful anvil. And then I know you just got an induction for a forge. That's going to be super, super helpful to you. Definitely. I also, I also believe because um, a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, you're very well uh, equipped with uh, the computer end of having stuff made. I mean, when you have your parts made, you get things laser cut and you do all the uh, AutoCAD. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good point cut. there. I mean, a lot of people get stuck on doing things a certain way, which I, I really, I do appreciate the traditional way of doing a lot of things. But in reality, if you want to be successful and make money off of it, you have to you have to consider how much time something you, you got to know what you have to make per hour and you got to make that work. Cause if you don't, your labor's the labor's yeah, brutal. Yeah. If you, you know, and I get, I catch myself putting in way more time on certain things, but I, it, you know, you accept it sometimes cause you want something to come out a certain way uh, and learn from it. Like sometimes you make something and you're like, okay, I, I should be charging twice as much for this, but I could do it at this speed. So I'm going to charge that because if I had to do it again, I could do it faster because I figured out what I did wrong and how I could make it more efficient. There's a, there's a very strange mental. I think it's like a, it's like a, a stop for a lot of makers where they think that everybody should be doing it a certain way. And if they deviate from that pattern, then they're not really doing it as hard. They're not working as hard as everybody else. And it's almost like a it's almost like people feel like some people deserve things and some people don't. And when they see final results, it's the amount of work they see, whether or not something's valuable yeah. or not. And I'm not 100 percent sure that I think that that's like it's it's very it's a very defeatist way of going about yeah. things, you know? Because I know that for your uh, guillotine tool parts and. You've you even when we did uh, when we did uh, bottle openers, you were able to kind of cut a pile of time down because you could have um, the stuff laser cut out. And I, I think that being able to be proficient in that has saved you a t- pun, oh, ton it's of been time. I mean, huge. I mean, that was like learning how to use a three D program and laser cutting a lot of things. Um, <clears throat> and there's still always learning curve with that because when you're forging it, you got to consider what shape it's going to take after you forge it. So the cutout could look completely weird, but depending on what you're going to do to it, it'll end. You got to make it end up where you want it to be. So you got to consider those kind of things. And yeah. which is, which well, is, I figured I mean, out a lot of things it, through trial and error, but, but that's how you do you, you, when your trial and error is like now, when you did your, your, when you finished the way you do your hydraulic presses, you were able to actually get when you have them cut. I, you showed me that I had them uh, inscribe a line with the laser, so I know where to line things up. 
I mean, there's a degree of like constantly getting things more innovative and, and efficient for you to make your life easier. It's a good part of doing the entire thing yourself because you like you're thinking about the process from start to finish. So you're like, okay, I know I gotta weld this. I'm like, I could get this much cut off and I won't have like I can save every single amount of grinding possible by cutting it out the right way and having layout lines on there so I don't have to lay anything out when it comes to me. The, it's all on there. Right. It becomes more like assembly, you know, just just assembling it. It's it's like I said about the about MIG welding. It's like you want to design it in a way that a monkey could put it together. Right. It's like, well, I mean, that's yeah. innovation. Innovation is figuring out ways in which to make it easier the next time. The first time is always going to be tough, and how can we make yeah. things easier? Especially if you ever want to have someone work for you or do yeah. jobs where you don't have to micromanage them. You gotta you gotta make it simple enough that you can show them once and they're like, oh, I got this. The next question, I sent a message to Jake, yeah. Jake Barron. I know you work with Jake. Yeah, yeah I reached out. That's and the I'm first gonna... time I forged out in Seattle. I just randomly reached out to him. I was like, hey, is there any chance I could come forge with you? I'll, I'll strike for free. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then now he said I yes. see him every time I go out there. And that's how I met Steve. Uh, Steve Howell, the Ballard Forge. Yeah. So I said to I said to Jake, I'm, I'm interviewing you, and and could he write you something? So I'm just gonna read exactly <laughs> what he wrote, and then and then you can decide what you want to answer. He goes, "That's a tough one. I know Cliff, so I don't have any special questions in mind, really. I know he was teaching before COVID destroyed everything for everyone. I suppose it would be I'd be curious to know what his goals are with blacksmithing career wise, uh, where he'd like to go, and what he finds most fulfilling." So he knew he knows that you you know that things stopped and you weren't able to go to yeah. John's. But what is it? What is? Where are your goals in blacksmithing, and where do you see yourself going career wise? Um, I'm pushing you. I'm yeah. pushing you. I'm pushing you with same, the same questions. I, I'm not done. <laughs> I need to know. People need to know. People want to know what you're going to do. People are watching your every step. They know what they want. I mean, in dream world, you just make what you want to make and people buy it. But like, that's not always the case. So you try to find the things that are uh, enjoyable to you, but also things people want. Um, And it goes back to what I said in terms of what I want. Uh, I'd like to to be a mixture of the tools, not just all one thing, like just hammers. And I like making new stuff all the time. So, but it comes down to being able to make something good in a reasonable amount of time that you're making, making right. it at least close to what you should be making enough to, enough to pay your bills you f- and, you know, live. But how do you feel about that also in regards to the marketplace? My fear is with like, I bought hammers from you and John and I bought hammers from uh, Jake and, you know, I, I like buying hammers from other blacksmiths, especially the ones that I know. Uh, actually all of them is the ones that I know. Even Ben, so I got a hammer from Ben. I got a few hammers from Ben. I worry about guys like you guys who are focusing on the marketplace of just blacksmiths because I, when I'm on knife talk, all we do is get, we get the same question over and over again is um, what do you make and what do you buy? We get that a lot. Like what tools do you make for yourself? And we always talk about making tongs and stuff like that. But I mean, making hammers is, is so much more difficult than, you know, making a pair. Of That's a tough, tools. it's a tough market. I'm sure tongs are a tough market too. I mean, uh, there's a lot of I guys selling stuff all black, ch- super cheap and people, a lot of people who are buying this stuff are beginners and they 
either can't tell the difference, can't afford it, or what, whatever the case may be. So if I had more time, be honest if I had more time, I'd love to dive into other things. Uh, like, like John's been doing theories. kitchen utensils. Like I'd love to try yeah. that. I just haven't had time. Um, things that are more sellable to just like everyday people, not just blacksmiths. That's my biggest fear. I don't think forging hammers is going to be something that you're going to be able to depend on. I know it's not. And I, I've known Five that, years, I've known years, that okay. for a long time. I just, I still get requests. I like to do it. Oh, of so, course. And I don't no. take every single one. And, and I tell everyone, I'm like, this could be weeks or months. So it, this, right. it's up to you. You know, there's plenty, there's obviously plenty yeah, of you're options able to, out there. You're able to say yeah, that. Yeah, I say that. I say that. You're yeah. able to do that. But I'm convinced, I'm, I'm concerned with blacksmiths wanting to be blacksmiths that they're focusing on businesses. They're focusing on their idea of a business, their, jo- their joy. I like to do this because this is my joy. I like to make bottle openers. Or I like to make hammers. Or I like to make, and I feel well, that's like. That's a downfall. It's like, you, you, you got it. You got it. I feel be, like. You, you can't be stuck on making one thing. I'm always, like I do well, metal is, fabrication. So that's always something I could be doing as well. I would never think that like, I'm going to go get a house and make a living off of selling hammers or even just forge stuff. I know I'm going to have to do other stuff and I'm fine with that. I like doing other stuff as well. I wonder, and it's because I guess because I went into making culinary knives instead of just making hunting knives, because I, I believe that there's more of a market for, you know, all of a sudden your, your market changes because you're able to make stuff for everybody as opposed to just hunters um or fetishists or or outdoorsmen or whatever i i feel like blacksmiths especially who make tools are focusing on other blacksmiths who who will get one hammer get two hammers get a browning hammer or cross peen and then or maybe a couple more things i just wonder what why why blacksmiths aren't just like making stuff like claw hammer more there should be more claw hammers out there I just don't understand how I don't understand how we're, we're where are we going to be more innovative in terms of how are these people going to be making businesses on it without making you know and being able to make something that the general mass are going yeah. to want to buy. You know, well, I think there's 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 a few guys who can sell them for a lot of money, and it's because and it's not because anyone needs that; it's because they want that amazingly made yeah, it's because they want thing, it. and that's why I know it's not something sustainable to live off of and you got to have other things going but and that's why you're being crap. it's it, the nice thing about it is is like it's free marketing on instagram and it's not yeah. like right now like if i moved out of the city I, I would i used to commute and i never want to do it again so you yeah. know having a super job and the uh the school job mean i have to be close to here and the beauty of the instagram yeah. and, and that free marketing is that it's all by mail. So like you're right. selling, you're just putting stuff in the mail. It could be going across the world. It doesn't matter where you are. I don't have to be in Manhattan where living is expensive. What I would pay for rent, I right. could probably be paying a mortgage on a pretty big house and property right. just you know, two hours away from the city or something. Well, that's the best part is, but I mean, that's the, that is the best part of social media and you all of a sudden you don't need a storefront. Yeah. And now we're even seeing that with, with coronavirus, we're seeing how businesses are doing so much better, you know, that, that you know, like Amazon, I mean, Jeff Bezos just oh, made yeah. like, what do you make? Like $11 billion. Oh, As a super, I know like because that. of how many cardboard Amazon boxes I oh, fold yeah. up every day. 
Oh yeah, I wonder. You know who I think's making the most money of the guys who're making the cardboard boxes? <laughs> is that the Kraft company? I think it's like Roger Kraft. I think I believe he's the B- he, Roger Kraft of what football team is he? The is he the owner? Uh-huh. He's the owner of the Patriots. And I think I might be wrong, but I think he's from Kraft Paper. And I think that those guys, the guys who're making cardboard boxes. Those are the motherfuckers who are oh, making yeah. all packing that. material. I mean, I mean really think about it. Material? So many people making oh my money God. off of the Amazon train. Packing yeah. tape guys? The packing tape people? <laughs> oh my God, are you kidding oh, yeah. me? Those guys, I mean, look, look who's coming down the way. It's the from the duct tape. <laughs> they're coming down. They're, they're, yeah, they're relaxing. John and Cynthia duct tape doing really well. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I'm fascinated with you for that reason of, I feel like you're picking your spot. I feel like you don't, you're still young, you're able, you're, you're learning more, you're building more, you're able to build the stuff that you want to build and you're picking your spot and you're not jumping into things. You're not, you're, I think that you're very risky. Yeah. I mean, that's why I haven't done something already. I'm not much of a gambler. I, I, yeah, not high on the risk taking. So I want to be able to, when I do make a move, I want to feel comfortable about it. And, you know, I, all my money that I don't spend on, you know, food and living, it's, goes into my machines and stuff. So if I do move one day, I, I have all the things I need to continue what I'm doing. Like right now I have stuff at my place. I have stuff at John's place. I mean, you're, you're, you have some of my stuff. I have stuff at my school. It's scattered in multiple different places. It'd be great if it was just all in one place. And if it's mine, I can move it around the way I want. I can set it up permanently. That would be, that would be a dream to do. I feel as though there's a lot of people, and this also has to do with, you know, we don't really give out everything we're doing on Instagram. We, people don't follow us and know. Oh, yeah, I don't think I like, you know, put roll out a better much of anything about my personal life. Well, with, with that said, with that said, I think I we get like I said, knife talk. We get people. All people want to know is how do I get more proficient? How do I become more like Cliff? How do I become more like John? How do I become more like Jake Farron? everybody seems to think that there's like a YouTube video or uh, some sort of magic pill that's going to get you to that degree of proficiency. And it's always, we always just to say, it's just, there's no YouTube videos going to get you. No, everyone's situation is different, you know, know? and even the people who seem like they got it figured out probably don't have it completely figured out or they took a gamble and they made it or, you know, it could be so many different things. So yeah, there's no one answer to that. I think. Once again, I, I I've said this a million times and uh, you know, I think that it's true. I think that a lot of gifted people, there's a lot of makers out there who are very gifted and it gets to the point where they think because I'm good at one thing, that means I'm good at everything. And they're unable to make the decision of saying, I need help to make this stuff happen. I don't know what is going on where I'm not, where I'm supposed yeah. to be. And I think that what you said in terms of efficiency and, and, and constantly learning and being a sponge for information, trying to figure out what you're <laughs> going to do, but also know your limitations, you know, and then figure out how you can adjust to those limitations are huge. I think that a lot of people, you know, they'll learn how to do something and then they'll just say, I want to do this for the rest of my life, but then not realize that it, it, you know, business is a lot different than just, you know, making something that you oh, want. Oh, for sure. I mean, another thing in a, in a dream world is like I'd have a partner who was like, like, like what you have. You have someone who's totally into doing the business side of it. Like if it was up to me, I would just do the work all day and not have to look at any 
numbers or invoices or anything like that. I would just have work keep getting thrown in front of me. I'd stay in the shop the whole time. But doing some of my own mm-hmm. stuff, you know, I have to spend a lot of time sitting in front of a computer, like responding to things or doing accounting. That It's not, not what I want to well, do, it's, but it's a part of it, doing it yourself. Well, I'm a dreamer. I, I've always been a dreamer. And I've... I had to make it, I'm also older than you, and I'm older than a lot of these young makers who think that it's easy to go into business for yourself. I wanted to, and, and if I was if I was not married, no kids, and I didn't have anything else, I think things would be a lot different. I, 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 there, I, things would have been a lot different, but I had to make the decision to, I had to make the decision to have a business partner because it wasn't just I wanted to succeed. I had to, I had to make not only myself feel the importance of success but also i needed my wife to know that i'm not just fumping around and 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 fooling around i wanted her to know but i also wanted me to know i didn't want to be lying to myself or lying to her that i wanted this to be serious and i'm going to give a piece of this business to a, somebody who i know can get me where i want to be and things are growing even in this in this time and it's been, you know, some of my, some of my, um, some of, I, I haven't lost creativity, but I mean, I don't say no. If Tony's got an idea or Tony thinks we should go in a certain direction, I don't, I never, I, I rarely neg him. I, the only time I've ever negged him on an idea was he wanted to make t-shirts that were red with, with gold sparkles. <laughs> That's literally, that we had a, a legitimate fight. Not a legitimate fight, but he was just like, you told me I could. I said, all right, next T-shirt, you can design the colors that you want. He said, okay, red with gold sparkles. I'm like, I'm not making shirts with red with gold sparkles, dude. He's like, you told me that I could do whatever I want. That's what I want to do. It was like we've uh, that was our that was our biggest that was our biggest fight was. uh, And he wasn't he wasn't just uh, messing colors. It was it was serious. Uh, Tony always messes with me a little bit. Like there's always there's always a little bit of messing around, but. I've ident- we've I've known him for so long that I know when he's messing with me. But at the same time, I I've made the decision. Like if you want, I mean, I wouldn't have made oyster knives if he didn't say you got to make yeah. oyster knives or steak knives. I wouldn't have made steak knives if he didn't tell me. And, and it's and it's one of those things. That I think a lot of it has to do with your age. Yeah. I think that I think that when you make the decision to be a, of a certain age, you also have to come to conclusions that I'm not I'm not as I, you have to be a little bit more yeah. realistic. Yeah, for sure. So what's the takeaway, Cliff Dufton? What's next for you? Let's wrap this motherfucker <laughs> up. What's going on? What's next? Uh, <laughs> I'm always stumped with these. I, I mean, that's, you know, I told you what's next or, you know, what's hopefully next. What's, well, tell me what's again, goddamn. We've got to end hard. We've got to end, end good. We've got to end strong, I'm man. D- I'm always working for the same thing. I'm just chipping away at all my little projects saving my money and you know i occasionally i look at properties i'm I'm not like jumping to get something out you know this covid thing is is weird i i was gonna look at a a dave cordell actually sends me he sends me some nice properties and uh, you know i wanted to check them out and i i called one place and they were like you got to be pre-approved before you can even look at it i'm like I had never that never happened to me in all the times i've looked at properties that's adult that's adult time Get it pre-approved. Get it. That's adult time. Get I was pre-approved for a property out in Jersey that I was close to, close to going in. It was really nice property, but the realtor was just such a sleaze bag, and I just, I ended up not trusting things he was saying, and it was like zoning issues and stuff like that. And really? I just didn't want to. At the time, I was looking for a commercial space, and this one had like living quarters, 
which I was also kind of down on too, like having the same, like the same building be where I live and my shop. I, now, since then, I'm glad I didn't do it. I'm more into having like a little bit of property and have a house and shop separate. But you know, it's nice to get up in the morning and and walk fifty or a hundred feet to your to to your work. You know, Cliff Dufton's not risk adverse. Not totally, just the bigger risks like that. I gotta take small risks with like projects me and John try. You know, a lot of them are like, let's try this, and he's like, that's stupid. You're crazy. And sometimes they are stupid and crazy, but you know, sometimes they work out. But yeah, and sometimes yeah. they work out. Cliff Dufton. CJ Dufton on Instagram. He's my friend. If you want to know about well-rounded excellence, you got to go watch what Cliff is doing. Everything he does, it's always good, if not better. I'm telling you, this is my honest opinion. I've known fabricators. I've known welders. I've known blacksmiths, bladesmiths. I know guys who make good things. I'd have never met someone as gifted all around as you. And I'm very always fortunate enough when I when we get to hang out, we go to another hammer and hopefully when things lighten up, hopefully we go to we're still on for a maker fair, a maker camp. I'm looking forward to that. If it happens, when it happens, I'm being fingers very crossed. Positive. I'm staying positive on that as well. And with that said, thank you very much, Cliff. I really appreciate you being thank on you. here. It's a pleasure. Um, CJ Dufton on Instagram. Go follow him. He is the best, one of the best of all time. Follow him with with uh, Mahatma Jandi, and then and then and then when you're done with that, go over to Instagram and follow the Full Blast podcast, and then go, you can interact with us. You want to send us a message? You want to send questions, dilemmas? Uh, I got uh, Steve House is going to be next week. That's Moonshine Metalworks. Then Chris Cash is going to be the week after that, and then Tomer Botner is coming in. We're going to talk basketball. Believe it or not, big Knicks fan. We're going to talk basketball, and then um, there you have it. So go follow us on Instagram. And then go to iTunes and help. Now, I'm not, I don't ask for much out of you guys, okay? I don't ask for much. But what I'm asking for is I need you to hit subscribe. I need you to leave me a review. And I need you to leave me five stars because it helps us. We need it. And go follow the guys on the Makery Network. And thank you very much for your support. Thanks again, Cliff, for being here. And we, we'll, we're going to see you every Friday. We'll see you next time, guys. Thanks again. Thanks. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.